Right. Well, it's such a, a privilege to be able to study God's word together. This is uh, the word of God, and he speaks to us through what he has spoken, and the spirit of God is at work. And so I am just excited to see what God's going to do in my heart and in your heart as we consider what he has to say to us today. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're looking again at the temptation of Jesus. This is a a really big moment. It's so big that it's going to take us a number of weeks to get through it, actually. Uh, but this is part of our study of the Gospel of Luke, of course. We've been working our way through uh, this Gospel uh, off and on now for a while. Uh, we're uh, working our way through the Gospel of Luke, slowly but surely asking a question. And that is, uh, who is Jesus? And uh, one reason we ask that question is because there are a lot of wrong ideas of Jesus out there, uh, even from people who say they know Jesus, which is sad, and, and we don't want that. That's another reason we're asking who is Jesus, because we love Jesus, and when you love someone, knowing them, knowing who they really are is a, a priority, and uh, those are reasons I might give as to why this question matters so much, but if you look at Luke, he gives reasons as well in chapters one through three. Uh, this is his gospel, and he introduces this gospel by motivating us to read it, and chapters one and two especially are his introduction, and in those chapters, he's laying out motivations, and you could summarize uh, the way Luke introduces Jesus, the way he motivates us to think about who Jesus is, as Luke saying that Jesus is the solution to all our problems, basically. I think that's what Luke would say. We need to think about who is Jesus because he is the solution to all our problems. And not in a, a superficial way either, like come to Jesus and everything gets easy. It's deeper. Luke believes that God has a plan. And he has laid out that plan in the Bible. And he has a plan to deal with all, kinds of, all, all the kinds of horizontal problems that there are in this world. The problems we have with one another. The problems we have with our environment. And he has a problem to deal with all of the vertical problems we have spiritually as well in our relationship with God. And he's claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. In other words, Luke is saying, look, we've got problems. How are they going to be fixed? God's plan is to send one person, one person, to provide the solution for all the problems in the world. One person the solution to all the horizontal problems and the vertical problems. And that problem is Jesus. Uh, that person is Jesus. And, which, of course, is amazing. That's amazing to be able to say that about someone. That's quite an introduction. And you can imagine if it is true, how we would live, how that would change things. If we were sitting here knowing that God had a plan to reverse the curse, that, that God is going to fix every problem. You name the problem, fixed. And that that plan rested on the work of one person who lived a couple thousand years ago and what he did. I mean, how important would that person be to us? How would knowing that impact the way we think, what we do, how we feel? It would be revolutionary, of course. It would be uh, uh, amazing. It is revolutionary to say that God is solving all the problems of the world through the work of one person. And that we know who that person is. That person is Jesus. And yet the, the problem is that it's also potentially a little confusing. Or at least a little hard to believe. That's the problem. I think if I talked to most of you, you would have reasons. We have, we have reasons why we struggle to believe that about Jesus. I hope you do believe that about Jesus. Because it's true. But we have doubts that we might struggle with living all these years later. But what we, what we sometimes forget is that it wasn't really any easier to believe those kinds of claims back in Luke's day either. Primarily because Jesus died. And not just died, but he died on a cross. He was crucified. That would be a pretty big objection, an easy objection, if a person was a Roman person or a Gentile person. Because the cross was the way the emperor humiliated his enemies, really. 
And if you were a Jewish person, you would be maybe even more confused or offended or even angry, really, because the cross would be a a symbol of God's curse to you. And so on the surface, it would seem like just a very easy claim to refute about Jesus, like close the book at Luke chapter 3. How can he be the one the Old Testament promised? How can he be God's solution to all the problems in the world when he died? when he was crucified. But of course, maybe you would say, well, I know the Christian answer to that question. He rose. He rose. That's the answer. And that is a big part of the answer. Of course, obviously, the resurrection of Jesus is what makes the difference. And we're going to see that as we study the Gospel of Luke. But still, there's got to be a little more to it. And that's why we get a whole Gospel, actually. Because if all you needed to know to answer the objection was that he rose, then Luke could have just said that, right? He died, he rose, gospel over. But he doesn't. He tells this big, long story. Why? The reason why is he wants you to understand not just the facts, but the significance. The reason why is because Luke wants you to see something more than just that the cross didn't stop the plan God laid out in the Old Testament. He wants you to understand that the cross fulfills it, that the cross is the key part to it, that you can be confident about Jesus because if you really understand the Old Testament properly, you understand that what happened to Jesus is part of what had to happen to Jesus in order for him to be the savior we so desperately need. And in this section that we're looking at, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 13, that's a a section. If you were going to outline Luke, maybe you would say Luke 1, 1 to 3.20, part 1, and Luke 3.21 to 4.13, part 2, its own little section. And this little section is important because it's sort of right in between. Right in between the introduction Luke gave us about Jesus, about how he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, And then the public ministry of Jesus that he's going to spend a lot of time on. The public ministry of Jesus begins down in in, in verse 14. So you've got these claims about who Jesus is in Luke 1 through chapter 3, verse 20 that I was just describing. And then you've got what happened beginning in chapter 4, verse 14. And then right in between chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 13, it's like Luke in this little section gives you a key for unlocking the mystery, you could say, for clarifying the confusion. This is part of what you need to know if you are going to understand the work of Jesus and how it fulfills the Old Testament. You're on your way to understanding it, at least, how it it all fits together. It's like this provides a framework for understanding what happens in the rest of the Gospels and what Jesus does. And, And you remember... It has to do with the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. The baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation all have to do with the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, and specifically what it means for him to be the Son of God. As Jesus identifies with the people who were longing for God to keep his Old Testament promises at his baptism, God rips open the sky and he makes an announcement. It's like he steps into this world and he explains Jesus. And he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so that's like the teacher giving you the answer key. You're reading something and you're confused. And he's like, okay, let me just give you a shortcut Jesus is the Son of God. That's the shortcut that will help you understand how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, which is great. But now the problem is for most of us that we are not immersed in the Old Testament. And and so we come back to Luke and we're like, uh, wait, what exactly do you mean by Son of God? And one of the ways Luke helps us is by pointing out several pictures or patterns or categories the Bible gives to explain. In fact, maybe you remember as we've been looking at Luke, we've seen that he draws our attention to two categories or pictures or patterns in particular. And we saw that by kind of tapping on 
the genealogy and the baptism a little bit. And we know, this is like a Bible study clue, the, the way we know Luke wants us to look more closely at the baptism and genealogy is because when he talks about the baptism, he talks about the heavens being opened, and that doesn't happen every day. That's literally a sign. And also, he puts the genealogy in a weird place, and it's even formatted differently than most genealogies, which is Luke's way of saying, you can't just rush by this. You have to pay attention. And when you do, you discover Luke highlighting these two pictures or patterns or categories for understanding Jesus, Adam and Israel. And we could add a third even, actually, if it doesn't make it too confusing. And that's David as well. These are pictures. You know how when you're teaching children, you need to use illustrations. And even when you're not teaching children, it helps if you have a picture to explain something. And Adam, Israel, and David are like these three pictures that Luke pulls out of his pocket to help us understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And one way we know these are important pictures, and probably the reason Luke uses them, is because they're all described in the Scripture as the Son of God. Sometimes when we uh, study the Bible, we're like, this takes work, right? It takes work to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. But also, we should understand God went to work, like thousands of years of history he put together so you could understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. So it's worth it to take the effort. And, and, and we know Adam, Israel, and David are important pictures because they're all described at points in the Bible as a son of God. And while Jesus, of course, is the son of God in some unique ways, there are also some things we learn about Jesus as the son of God from Adam and Israel and even David, because Adam and Israel and David were also all called a son of God. Adam, here in Luke 3.38, but again, Luke doesn't make this up. He drew this idea from back in Genesis 5. And then uh, David, uh, which comes from a, a passage God quotes at Jesus' baptism, Psalm 2. And Israel as well, in Exodus 4.22, is called God's firstborn son. And these are important pictures. There, there are things that we are supposed to learn about what it means for Jesus to be the son of God from each one of them. Like from Adam, for example, we learn Jesus came to be a public person, meaning he came to represent. If Adam was the first man, Jesus was to be the second man. And so you know how with Adam, his choices in the garden affected others. The same is true with, with Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at someone who literally came into this world to live his life for other people as a representative. And from Israel, we learn that Jesus' mission as a son wasn't simply for Jesus. After Adam fell, God made a, a promise to a man named Abraham about using his descendants to fix the problems Adam's rebellion created. And of course, they failed over and over and over again. And so God sent Jesus into the world to do what they could not. In other words, Jesus came to be the means through which God would fulfill his promise to Abraham that one of his descendants would bring blessing to the nations. And then, of course, there's David. And we get a clearer idea of what God intended for Jesus as the Son of God by looking at David. And when we look at David, we see that God had a plan for Jesus to be king, that, that God one day would establish him as king forever, crushing his enemies and bringing peace to the entire world as a result. And if you want more, read Psalm 2. But for now, the point is that Adam, Israel, and David are these pictures that help us get an idea of what it means for Jesus to be God's son. It means he's a man. It's actually kind of ironic as we look at the term son of man in the Gospels, which we're going to get at later in Luke. That is more focused on Jesus being God. And when we look at the term son of God, that's usually getting us thinking more in terms of his humanity which is definitely true here in this particular passage. As we look at Jesus, we're looking at the connection with Adam, and that connection with Adam means we're looking at a man, the second man. It's like Jesus is coming to create a whole new humanity, which I can't wait to talk about when we get to the book of Acts. He's a representative man and a unique man as well, and that he didn't just identify with Adam, he identified with the nation of Israel as well. As we study the ministry of Jesus, we're going to see it's like he's a new Israel. There's a reason he chooses 12 apostles. 
he, he, he is taking on Israel's responsibilities and obligations on himself. He is fulfilling this one man, the role of the nation, the role of Israel. And then finally, it means that he's king, the heir to David's throne, which is all super helpful, right? How do I understand Jesus? I need to think representative. I need to think doing what Israel was supposed to do. I need to, to think fulfilling the Davidic covenant and reigning as king. That, that takes me a long way. And yet, the thing with all those pictures is that there's still a little something missing, actually, if we're going to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Like, for starters, there's the fact that Adam, Israel, and David all ultimately failed in their mission. I mean, they were given this privilege to be called the Son of God, a Son of God, to, to represent others, to be the means of bringing God's blessing to the universe. They were given clear commands about how to do it, and yet Adam failed in the garden really quickly, and the first generation of Israel after Egypt failed, and then the second generation kind of succeeded. They got into the promised land, but they couldn't sustain it, and David, of course, did well and then crashed and burned, and so did all the kings after him, which means literally every picture we have of a son so far in the Bible up to this point is of a son who was given great privileges, great responsibilities, great opportunities, and yet fails. They're all disobedient sons, every one of them, which first of all shows the problem why God couldn't just send Jesus to defeat Rome and establish the kingdom because there was a, a greater, more fundamental problem that needed to be dealt with first. And it's why this battle in the wilderness in Luke 4 with the devil matters so much because as we look at Jesus, who's announced as the next great stage in God's redemptive plan as the climax, the key, the one who's supposed to change absolutely everything and create a new humanity and fulfill the promise of Israel, we need to know for sure that he's not going to do the same. If he's going to save us, this is one thing we need to know for sure, because all the blessings God has in store, all the, 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 the ways in which he's going to deal with our horizontal problems and our vertical problems, all of those blessings are conditioned on obedience, which is the issue, because nobody has been obedient so far. And so we need to know that Jesus is not just another one of those sons who goes into the wilderness and comes back defeated. And, and beyond that, that's, that's one thing we need to know. But beyond that, we need to know that he's able to actually deal with the problem. There's a, a reason the second generation of Israel couldn't overcome evil ultimately. We're, we're living in a war zone. We have a supernatural enemy who needs to be defeated. And even beyond that, because we've only seen sons who have been defeated, we need some help knowing exactly what kind of son Jesus would be. It's like all our pictures are distorted. You know, of what it means to be a, a son of God. It's kind of like, and this is a, a bad illustration. It will only work for uh, some of you. The rest of you, if you could just be patient. But Levi told me he liked it, so I'm going to use it. It's kind of like if there were two Captain Americas. And uh, one is the good Captain America. He's the original. And the other is a poor imitation. But if all you had was a poor imitation, if that's all you knew, you didn't have the original, you would have some idea of what it meant to be Captain America, maybe. He wears a certain outfit, he has a shield, but you would probably have some confusion about how Captain America is supposed to work, which is a little bit what it's like with these pictures of Adam, Israel, and David. They only get us so far, which is part of why God leads Jesus right into the wilderness right at the beginning of his ministry. And you know, Luke is very clear about this, that God is the one who sends Jesus into the wilderness. And we know that because he stresses it twice, if you look at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And Mark is even more dramatic when he talks about it. He says, the Spirit immediately cast Jesus out into the wilderness, which is obvious right there on the page when you read it, but maybe seems a little strange at first if you think about it. God leading his son into the wilderness to be tempted by, by Satan. But obviously God had to lead Jesus into the wilderness because if part of his purpose was to redo the story of Adam and Israel the way Luke's saying, then he's going to have to be tested like Adam and Israel were. 
and he's going to have to come out victorious. He's going to have to triumph because there's no way Jesus can do everything he's called to do and be who the Bible says he's supposed to be if he doesn't succeed where they didn't. You might say it's like God is using the devil here for his own good purposes. He leads Jesus into the wilderness to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and to accomplish a key victory as the Son of God. And you know, even beyond that, God leads Jesus into the wilderness to, to help us understand what it even means for him to be the Son of God, to help us understand how he is going to fulfill his mission as the Son of God. In other words, he doesn't only want to declare Jesus to be his beloved Son. God wants to show us what a beloved son looks like. That's, that's part of the temptation, the purpose of the temptation. And so as we look at Jesus being tempted, there, there's something unique here. About, uh, there's something unique about what's happening here in God's great redemptive plan. This is not the exact same as us being tempted because Jesus is actually being tempted for us so he can redo the story of Adam and so he can create a new humanity, and so he can fulfill the promise of Israel, and so he can reverse the curse. But at the same time, as he is being tempted, he is showing us what it looks like to be an obedient son, which is important for one thing, because some of our wrong ideas about what it means to be the son of God are what make it difficult for us to understand what happens to Jesus, and for another, because we need a pattern to follow. And, and God gives us one as we see Jesus succeeding where Adam and Israel didn't. And the question we're asking today is how? In, in other words, what does Jesus understand that they don't? And to answer that, I want us to look down at verses 1 through 13 and, and think carefully about the nature of these temptations. If you were here last week, we talked about first the, the context of the temptation and then second, the setting. And now I want us to look at the nature of the temptations because there are three temptations specifically recorded here. Uh, one in verse 3, another in verses 6 and 7, and then a final one in verses 9 through 11. And it could just be that these are the final three temptations. Because the way Luke puts it in verse 2, he, he says he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And so it seems like he's continually being tested. And Luke is giving us the final conclusion to that test. Which I think, to be honest, at first, for most of us, doesn't seem like that intense a test, really, actually. Because these three temptations don't seem all that tempting. I mean, you know the temptations, right? Turning stones into bread, that's one. Worshiping the devil, that's two. And jumping off the temple, that's uh, the top of the temple, that's three. And those aren't usually on most people's lists of their top three temptations. Which is why I think we need to look at them a little more closely, because I think when you do, you'll see how in each one of them, the devil is striking at the heart of Jesus' relationship with God the Father. As someone has said, these three temptations are ultimately about fatherhood. And though they're unique to Jesus in that he is the unique son of God, they also represent some pretty core temptations for each one of us as his adopted sons and daughters as well. And we can start with just the first, verse 3. In the, the very first temptation, Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt the Father's love. I think that's how John MacArthur puts it, actually, by, by tempting him to question his provision. We read, the, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Which is maybe a little hard at first to understand how that would have been sinful, to turn a stone into bread, but it's definitely not difficult to understand how that would have been tempting. Because here is Jesus, and he's man. He's a fully a man. He didn't stop being God when he came into this world, but he, he, he did come into this world to live his life completely and fully as a man. He laid aside the independent use of his attributes, and as a man, he's hungry. I, I like how Luke puts it, because it's kind of understated. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus fooled the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. And I can imagine he was hungry after 40 days of not eating. I like get hungry in between breakfast and lunch. 
And like any other human being, Jesus had normal physical desires, like the desire for food. And after 40 days of not eating, he must have almost been desperate for it. In fact, I wonder if you can remember the last time you were really hungry. You're like, right now. Um, Probably most of us haven't been quite as hungry as Jesus at this point. But we know what it's like to be hungry. We know what it's like to be thirsty. And it's funny, if you're really hungry or thirsty, hardly anything else matters to you at that moment besides getting more food. It's like Esau, classic Old Testament illustration. When he was hungry, even his birthright didn't matter. And we can understand that if you're hungry enough. It's like your mind gets on one track, food and water. And if you're hungry or thirsty enough, it's, it's almost impossible to become distracted from that. It's like all you can think about. Now, obviously, and this is important, if you're going to understand this particular temptation, in and of itself, The desire for food or water is a good one. God made us to want. We don't just have to, like, you know, look at the calendar to see if we're supposed to eat. He gave us that desire. And there's nothing wrong with Jesus wanting food after 40 days of not eating. That's just part of being a normal human. In fact, the truth is going for without food for that long is is actually dangerous, not healthy. And you can imagine Jesus here, he's in the wilderness, And as someone has said, that's not really a safe place for a weak, dehydrated man. He could easily faint on the rocks and become easy prey for wild animals that are prowling about. Jesus' hunger here wasn't simply a matter of discomfort. He was in genuine physical jeopardy, which is why at first it seems a little difficult to understand how this is even a temptation. It kind of makes us scratch our heads a little bit. I mean, it's not hard to understand why Jesus would want to turn the stones into bread. But it is hard to understand why doing that would be sin. Because the temptation here is not Jesus having the desire for food. It it can't be. There's nothing wrong with being hungry after 40 days of eating. The temptation instead is for Jesus to allow that normal physical desire to get him to start thinking that his father wasn't really taking care of him the way he should. And as a result, to start trying to act independently of God as his father. That's what Satan wanted, to to get Jesus to start using his power for his own personal benefit, first and foremost. In other words, another way to say it, if you want to be real simple, the temptation is to make a good thing ultimate. Because God and what God wants is supposed to be first. That is the main thing. But Satan wants Jesus to make his physical desires most important. Don't be asking, what does God say? Be asking, what do I want? And, and you know, I was thinking, this is actually where a lot of people are at in their Christian life. And even in their relationship with God, honestly. They're not first thinking, how do I glorify God? How do I serve and obey God? They're thinking, first, how do I satisfy my physical desires? If you look at the way they're living, they're taking good things and making them the main thing, even actually when it comes to their relationship with God. And it may not even be these crazy things that are becoming too important to them. It it, it could be something as simple as what's happening with Jesus here, bread, survival. They're, They're lacking something they need to survive. And so when they look at their circumstances, they're beginning to doubt whether God cares for them because this desire isn't being met. And they become so consumed with that good desire and getting what they want. That's what their whole relationship with God becomes about, not God's will, their wants. And they're just busy all the time trying to get God to do what they want. And on a day-to-day basis, it is their comfort or even just their survival that drives them and in the end destroys them. Because that's what happens anytime you make a good thing the main thing. You can count on it. That good thing cannot handle being the main thing. And it destroys you. And that's what Satan was trying to get to drive Jesus, a good thing, hunger, just not the main thing, God's will. The temptation for Jesus was to make personal comfort a greater priority than obedience. The the temptation was for Jesus to make his own physical desires more important than the will of God. Now, maybe let me try to explain exactly how, because I'm not sure we always see it because it's kind of confusing really 
How is turning a stone into bread making a good thing the main thing? There's some context which starts with understanding what it means for Jesus to be a son. Because when we think son, many of us, we normally think relationships, we think emotions, stuff like that. And, and that, that is a big part of it, of course. But biblically, really, what it meant to be a son was to be a person under authority. Uh, this is definitely the way it was with Israel. The Israelite father in Israel was the head of the household. And it's clear as we look at Jesus' perspective on his relationship with his father that he understood himself to be a person under authority as well. You see this, for example, in John. Truly, truly, I say to you that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. John 5, 19. For a time... In becoming man, God the Son chose to lay aside the independent use of his attributes, to live his life fully as a man, submitting completely to God's will. That's part of what it means for him to live his life here on earth as the Son of God, which is why Jesus didn't just do miracles. Like, oh, I think I want a hamburger. Let's make a hamburger. No, they had a purpose, the miracles, to, to line up with God the Father's will for him, not just to get what he wanted. And Satan knew that, I'm sure, but obviously Satan here is tempting Jesus to think about sonship a little differently. Instead of thinking about being a son as I need to submit to the father, first he wanted Jesus to think about being a son as using his power to get what he wanted. As someone else has explained, the, the temptation has to do with Jesus using his power and status for self-benefit. I mean, it's not actually that Satan is doubting Jesus is the Son of God. Actually, this is key to this whole thing if you look at the text. Satan is not doubting that Jesus is the Son of God. You know what he's doing here? He's offering up a different version of sonship. And actually, the version of sonship that he's offering up is the version that the disciples and pretty much everybody else in Israel was expecting when the Messiah came. And I know when he says here, if you are the Son of God, it sounds like he's questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God, but that's not how it goes in the original. This is a certain Greek grammatical construction that means more since than if, since you are the Son of God. The, the point being that Satan's not really doubting Jesus' identity as much as he is seeking to twist it. He's not testing the fact of Jesus' sonship, but the mode of Jesus' sonship. In other words, he's looking at Jesus' circumstances, and he's asking, is this really what it means to be the son of God? To be out here in the wilderness, starving like this? Is this really the way it works? I'm confused. If you're the son of God, loved by God like this, with this great plan laid out in the Old Testament, why is your father letting you go hungry? That doesn't look like love to me. That doesn't sound like the plan. It's like he wants... Jesus, to look at where his relationship with the Father had brought him, where all this submission and obedience was leading him into the wilderness, hungry, starving, and being tempted, and to start questioning his Father's plan, and to start questioning his Father's concern and love for him as a result. The issue is fatherhood, because loving fathers are supposed to provide. That's what loving fathers do. Even Jesus says that. If you ask an earthly father for bread, is he going to give you a snake? And at this point, it kind of looked like Jesus' father was, was just giving him stones, honestly. It, it didn't look like at this point that Jesus' father was providing. And so in this first temptation, Jesus is being, is being tempted by Satan to, to stop living under his father's authority, to stop being so concerned about doing what his father wanted, and to start making his physical desires his top priority. And I think his strategy for accomplishing that was by trying to get Jesus to question whether his father loved him. Why continue to obey God, in other words, when he's treating you like this? Apparently, he's being led by the Spirit into hardship, fasting for 40 days. This is how one man explains it. That's not very pleasant. Why would God ask me to do that, to do something that hard and deprive myself? If you're the son of God, you don't deserve this. And it's funny because, you know, we're not going to be tempted to turn a stone into bread. But we will be tempted like this all the time to compromise, even though we say we're God's children, to act independently of God, to, 
to go out from under his authority and just go with our physical desires and not even worry about whether it's right because we don't think God's caring for us as well as he should. And, you know, that kind of temptation, when it comes into your life, it shouldn't surprise you when it happens. It's going to happen because this has always been one of Satan's best plans of attack. This is probably why he starts out with it here. Satan is always attacking the father's love for his children and the father's plan by looking at the circumstances we're experiencing. Because once he gets you doubting whether the father loves you, it's very difficult not to just let your physical desires take over and lead you places where you know you shouldn't go. It is easy to make a good thing the main thing when the main thing isn't the main thing. When you are not satisfied by the Father's love, you will try to find your satisfaction somewhere else. And I kind of think, actually, that Satan might have been pretty confident at this point, tempting Jesus like this. It's no surprise that he goes here first because he had done this so often before with success, like crazy kinds of success. Like, for example, Adam and Eve, way back in the garden. This is how he went after them. And it must have seemed difficult to, to get him, them, there to question God's love. I, I don't know if he talked with the demons, Satan, before he tempted Adam and Eve. But if he did, I can't imagine that any of the demons would have thought this was a good strategy, you know? I can imagine the demons being like, wait, that's where you're going? Like, they're living in a totally perfect place. <laughs> there are no problems. How are you going to get them to question God's love and care for them there? There's like only one tree they're not allowed to eat from. And yet, however crazy it was, it worked. He was still able to get Adam and Eve to wonder if God was for them. All it took was one command, one single solitary tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And you know, it always amazes me in a totally perfect place with an entire world that was made for them to enjoy, that humans would ever start wondering if God cared about them, but they did. And that's why I think here in the wilderness with Jesus, Satan's probably pretty sure that this temptation is going to work because it's the wilderness. It's not like with Adam and Eve where they had everything. Jesus had nothing. And it's not like with Adam and Eve where they were full and satisfied. With Jesus, he was hungry and alone. And so it's kind of like really Satan must have felt, all I need to do is just show Jesus' circumstances and let nature take its course. Look, we can imagine him saying, you're in a desert and you need bread. It's obvious. You know it. I know it. Everyone knows it. But does your father know it? I mean, I'm not so sure because it seems... Like to me, if, if he does know it, he must not care because I don't see any food around here. Do you? All I see is rocks. I know you're hungry. Sure, you need, you need bread, but it kind of seems to me like all your father is saying right now is let him eat stone. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that, like God's putting you in an impossible situation that if he really loved you, he would take better care of you. And, and I know sometimes it feels in those moments that you have no choice but sin. But really, when you allow your physical desires to lead you into sin and you blame your circumstances, what you're really saying is, is something about God and the kind of father that he is. And that is what makes this temptation such a big deal. If Jesus had listened to Satan, he wouldn't have just been making bread. He would have been saying that God was lying when God called him his beloved son. If Jesus had listened to Satan, he wouldn't have just been doing a miracle. He would have been re rebelling against his father's authority and making his physical desires a greater priority than what God wanted. And now I know, I, I hope you might be wondering, uh, wait, but how would turning stones into bread have been acting independently of God's authority? <laughs> like that seems weird. That, that's the question, isn't it? Obviously, I know it's sin to rebel against God's authority, but how is this act doing that since there are places in the Gospels where Jesus fed 5,000 people uh, out of nothing, and he did all these miracles? Why was it not sin there, but here it was? And while there are a couple answers to that, actually, one of them is that Jesus knew he wasn't in the wilderness accidentally. This is important. That's why we've been stressing it. It was God who led him there. And God led Jesus into the wilderness to fulfill a certain purpose. You remember, it was basically to redo the story of Israel. 
And so this is where that whole Israel connection that I was talking about last week is so important because what's happening here, and maybe this is why we don't always feel the full force of Satan's temptation, is that Jesus recognizes there's a backstory to what the devil is suggesting. So like we're just kind of getting the surface. It's like two famous chess players almost playing chess. Like I don't even know what a, a chess line would be. They can say the one chess line to the one and the other's like, oh, I can't believe you just said the Russian whatever. And like, oh. and we're like, I don't even know what's going on, but they're just laughing and giggling about it. There's a backstory to what is happening here. Something more going on. And the reason this is a big deal is because the backstory is that Jesus isn't just in the wilderness for holiday. He, he's like, deliberately been sent into the wilderness to redo the story of Israel and Adam. And, and what was God doing with Israel in the wilderness? He was testing what was in their heart. After God rescued Israel from Egypt, you remember this, right? In the book of Exodus, God took Israel into the wilderness before he took them into the promised land. And like with Jesus, it wasn't an accident. God took them in the, into the wilderness to test whether they would trust him. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 8.2, God's clear about this. Moses is speaking, and he says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in, in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The point being, Israel wouldn't have wanted to be in the wilderness for 40 years, but the wilderness was necessary, as their father knew, to humble them, to reveal what was in their hearts, and to teach them to depend on his provisions alone, to, to show them that the way to real satisfaction wasn't by having your every desire met, but by depending on God instead. And of course, we know the first generation of Israel didn't learn from that for the most part, because they didn't want a father like that. They just wanted a father who gave them what they wanted, when they wanted it, all the time. And so when they began to get hungry, they started almost immediately doubting that God was with them and that God was for them. They were so controlled by their physical desires that they actually lost all concern about what God was doing and what God wanted to the point where they started saying, we would rather go back to Egypt than serve a God like this. We would rather, listen to this, they say this, we would rather be a slave to Pharaoh than sons of God. Because in Israel's mind, a good father would never let them suffer. And even after all these great proofs of God's love, when they had to suffer even just a little, they immediately questioned God's purpose and they started making, getting what they wanted, satisfying their own physical desires more important than what God wanted for them. I mean, this is crazy to think they would rather be slaves in Egypt than sons of God in the wilderness. But it's like a lot of people, honestly. There are a lot of people who would rather be beat up by sin than loved by God. They do not have a place in their minds for a father who would ever allow them to suffer. And maybe that's why some would question the cross. If Jesus is God's son, how could God allow him to suffer like that? But Jesus understood what it meant to be God's son differently. And so when Satan tempted Jesus to think he had the right to disobey God because of his circumstances, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. When Satan tempted Jesus to think that because he was in this desperate situation, his first priority should have been to provide for himself, Jesus says back to Satan, no, my first priority always should be to do what God wants. Amen. Why? Why? And, I, and this is where it gets so cool. First of all, because it's right. It's right. He is God. You are not. But second of all, because it's wise. Because, I mean, what Satan is suggesting is not actually real. To think that a good father only gives you what you want all the time, that's not real. To think that if your father allows you to suffer, that he can't be looking out for your best, that's not real. Because, and this is so essential, man does not 
live by bread alone. And what happens if you start thinking and acting like he does, when you start thinking and acting like getting your physical desires satisfied is what matters most, that that is what's really going to sustain you and give you life, what happens is that you don't end up truly being satisfied. It's a lie because man does not live by bread alone. There's more to life than that. There's something more essential. And whenever you make a good thing the main thing, that good thing can't handle it because there's something even more fundamental than bread. There's something even more fundamental than having your physical desires satisfied, and that is your relationship with God. Bread is good. Bread is important. But it's not bread, ultimately, that gives you life that keeps you alive. It's not bread ultimately that satisfies. You can have bread and die. You can have what you want, all you want, whatever you want it, and be totally empty. That happens all the time because it's God alone who gives you life and who is able to really fill you up and who knows the best way to do that. And so it's not like he's up in heaven if you're his child and thinking, hmm, how do I make this child of mine suffer? He is pursuing your best. And, and you know what that means? It means if you're in a wilderness right now, that is the best place for you to be. Amen. Marta asked me such a good question the other day. She said, Josh, if you were, say you were all wise and you knew everything, and uh, obviously there was a big if before that, <laughs> She's like, Josh, if you were all wise and you knew everything and you were in control of the whole world and you could do whatever you wanted and you were totally good, how would the world be different than it is right now? You know what the answer to that question is? It wouldn't be different at all. Because if I was all wise and I knew everything and I had all power and I was all good, then I would be God and this is, this is the world. He is the one who knows. He is the one who knows. And so if you're in the wilderness right now, that is the best place for you to be. Your father has a purpose, a, a good purpose for you, one that is even better than you getting what you want when you want it all the time. And Jesus knew that. That's part of how he could overcome the devil as the son of God when these other sons couldn't. He wasn't focused first and foremost on using power for his own self-benefit. And he didn't become overly focused on making, getting his desires satisfied all the time and freak out when they weren't, even when he was hungry. Because he knew his father loved him and he knew his father was able to provide for him what he needed when he needed it most. He submitted to his father's authority because he was confident about his father's love. That's the kind of son he was. And understanding that is going to provide a framework for understanding Jesus and the way he thinks through the rest of this gospel and why his attitude to the cross is so different than basically everyone else on the planet at that time. And yet also it provides a challenge for us, I think, because, you know, we can sit here and be amazed by Jesus trusting his father in the wilderness, and we should, of course. But Jesus here is not only defeating Satan for us. He's also giving us an example of how an obedient son relates to his father. And so we need to ask, how about you? What is your view of sonship? Maybe to get a little convicting, is your view of sonship the devil's? God, you should give me what I want, when I want it, all the time. Are you willing to trust your father with your desires? Are you willing to trust your father that he loves you, that he's seeking your best, even when you're not getting what you want? I once heard someone say, and this is an old Puritan, believe it or not, but he said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Do you believe in God's personal, loyal love for you? Are you delighting in God's unconditional love? If not, if you don't believe your father loves you and you really are a Christian, it's not only that you're doing an unkindness to God. It's also that you're doing an unkindness to yourself. 
because man does not live by bread alone. That's a reality. If you somehow find a way to get all you, you want and all your physical desires are satisfied, but your relationship with God is wrecked, you've got nothing in the end. You just are a slave back in Egypt. And I know some of you, maybe you've been giving yourself an excuse to doubt God's love because you're looking at your circumstances and you're saying, I'm in the wilderness here. I'm hungry. It's been 40 days. But you can't judge God's love for you by your present circumstances. The reality is that sometimes the fact he takes you into the wilderness is proof of his love for you. I know that's why he did it with Israel, and that's definitely why he did it with Jesus, and that's why he does it with you. And so I know maybe some of you are single, and you've got this natural physical desire for a spouse, but are you willing to trust that God is for you, even if he isn't providing one right now? Are you willing to submit your desires to his providence, even if it means you have to live for a while in what feels like a wilderness? And maybe some of the rest of you, you have these desires I don't even know about. And you're hungry. You're so hungry. They're not being satisfied the way that you would like. And so you're tempted to think bad thoughts about God. If God really loved me, why would he let me suffer like this? And let me tell you, that is when Satan claps his hands. When you're thinking thoughts like that, Satan is, is clapping. Because once you start doubting the Father's loving concern for you, that's when he can easily tempt you to take what might be a good, normal, physical desire and lead you into dangerous spiritual compromise. If you're going to be an obedient son like the, the obedient son, you need to believe that it is God who's brought you where he's brought you, that he's in control of what's happening, and that he cares for you and will provide what you need when you need it, like Jesus did. In the wilderness, as he's tempted by the devil, Jesus overcomes this first temptation by recognizing that being an obedient, victorious son of God means seeking to honor his father first and foremost and looking to his father as his ultimate source of life and satisfaction, even over and above using his power to get what as a man he might want the moment he wants it. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. Thank you that you're speaking. Jesus, we love you. We love your word because it shows us you. And uh, Spirit of God, thank you for taking these words and, and making them more than just words, helping us see Jesus as the victorious son of God. And Jesus, first of all, we praise you because you conquered where we could not. You went to battle against the devil and you won. And that gives us hope. But also, Lord, we know uh, that you are providing an example for us. And so we pray that you will teach us to be obedient children who trust that our Father loves us, even when sometimes it might look like he doesn't. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.